In one sense, our goal in this book is simple. We want to locate key scriptures on this theme, carefully unfold them, and provide fuel for what I hope will be choice and productive moments for meditation and careful thought in the coming days and for the rest of our lives. As we apply what we encounter here, as we seek to let these truths penetrate and transform our daily lives, we will experience wonderful results from this investment of our time. I fully recognize that the Holy Spirit alone is our teacher. He may use me as a tool, but no human teacher can open your heart and convince and convict you of the truth of God's Word and how it bears on your life. Only His Spirit can do that. And as He does, you're actually experiencing God. His Word is not simply principles or concepts to increase your head knowledge, but a vehicle for your relationship with the living God, a personal encounter that anchors His truth in the center of your being, equipping and encouraging you to live it from your heart. So I want you to know God in all the scriptures we explore together, and then apply what he shows you, that you may be overwhelmed. My prayer is that this book's message will be an open door to so much more, that you'll discover truths in scripture that will challenge and encourage you for the rest of your life. I strongly encourage you to obtain this book's companion study guide to guide you in your quest and to keep it open as you explore the pages to come. In the months and years to come, may you always be captivated and compelled by the magnitude of what God has done in the cross. Part 1. The Cross in the Heart and Mind of God Where it all began it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 13:11. When we speak of the cross in its larger biblical meaning, we aren't thinking just of the crucifixion of Jesus, about his experience with the wood and the nails. It's a much, much bigger picture than that. In fact, we're viewing God's entire plan to redeem a world we're looking at the whole redemptive event as God sees it, not just as we perceive it. So the cross isn't just the physical cross. His physical death on an actual beam of wood, though this was certainly at the critical center of God's plan and purpose, but the essence of what happened that day went far, far beyond the cruel physical realities of execution by crucifixion. The cross transcends the physical dimension, and it also transcends time. To fully understand it, we must see the cross as the whole work of God that began in eternity. For Jesus is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, and our eternal life is something which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. How amazing! Even before the time of Adam and Eve and their fall into sin, the cross was on the mind and heart of God. Just as the shadow of the cross reaches back into eternity, so it also thrusts forward. The full meaning of the cross ultimately includes the resurrection of Jesus, and later we'll see how this unbreakable link between his death and resurrection became the foundational message of the early church. And so it remains to this very day. 
There's absolutely nothing in all of human history that equals this event we call the cross. But in the first part of this book, I want you to especially think of it as more than history's biggest fact. I want you to allow the Spirit of God to lay the heart of God over your own heart, so you begin to sense what the cross meant to our Father in heaven. Chapter 1 The Divine Necessity of the Cross Was there no other way? It is the gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8 When we recall the horror and frightful injustice of God's pure and blameless Son being crucified, the question often comes, why? We want to know, could there not have been some other way? Was there no other way to save us from sin? If you haven't yet done so, I urge you to stand in the presence of God and ask Him, why did Jesus have to die? Then linger in prayer until he gives you his answer. Throughout the scriptures, God makes clear the divine necessity of the cross. It had to happen. It was God's purpose, and there was no other way. If there had been, we can be absolutely certain that God would have provided it. That's why, in this world of so many religions, a Christian declares unashamedly that Jesus Christ alone is the way and the truth and the life, and that no one can come to the Father and to eternal salvation except through Him. If the cross was God's only way of providing human redemption, then Jesus Christ is surely the only Savior there is for all mankind. Eternity as God views it. The reason we often fail to grasp the divine necessity of the cross is that we don't view eternity as God views it. What does God know about eternity that you and I often fail to realize? Recall in your mind the familiar words of John 3.16. If you could choose one word that represents the core, the very heartbeat of what God is saying here, which word would it be? Loved? Gave? Perhaps everlasting life? Actually, it's the word perish. Think about that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Death is at the very foundation of that statement. Eternal death, a destiny that's inescapable by our own efforts. In Ephesians 2.12, Paul tells us to remember something we often forget. You were without Christ, having no hope, and without God in the world. Humanly speaking, none of us has any eternal hope of anything except to perish. Yet this inescapable fact brought a response from God's heart, one that causes us to bow in wonder and awe as we truly consider it. He so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so we would not perish. Something about that word, perish, made the cross eternally necessary, requiring God to give up his Son with no other effective strategy being possible. That word, perish, says something about eternity that we don't usually take in. And the reason we fall short of seeing eternity as God sees it is that we fail to view sin as God views it. The Proof of Sin's Magnitude 
How serious is sin? Serious enough that to provide a way to deal with it, God the Father ordained the death of his own beloved Son, a death far more profound than physical death, as we'll study later. His Son was holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners. His Son was a lamb without blemish and without spot. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. But sin, your sin and mine, necessitated this one's death. Have you realized, therefore, how the cross reveals more of the magnitude of sin than all the wars and atrocities and human cruelties throughout recorded history? God understands the seriousness of sin because all sin, every sin, is a personal offense against our God and our Creator. In that sense, there are no little sins. Any and every sin a person commits places that person in enmity with the Father. Not many people seriously think of themselves as God's enemy. Even believers often resist this way of thinking. They'll say with all sincerity about their past, Well, I wasn't really going against God. I just wasn't going with Him. But they're sincerely wrong. God's perspective is all that matters, and he says in his word that we were his enemies. Or, as Jesus put it, he who is not with me is against me. For the sake of his great name. In Ezekiel 36, God is ready to announce to his people the new covenant which will initiate our spiritual rebirth and renewal. Speaking through the prophet, the Lord will tell the people of God, I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. He will promise them, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will put my spirit within you and cause you...